This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Kelsey Waddell, Senior Editor of Healthpayer Intelligence and Multimedia Manager at Extelligent Healthcare Media. Advanced payment models, or APMs, are a key factor in driving progress toward value-based care in the healthcare industry. These payment models take many forms. CMS defines an advanced payment model as a payment approach that gives added incentive payments to provide high-quality and cost-efficient care. APMs can apply to a specific clinical condition, a care episode, or a population. In the decades since the start of the Affordable Care Act, the healthcare industry has been working towards greater alignment on value-based care. Advanced payment models that prioritize quality over quantity of services are at the heart of that transition. However, many advanced payment models may still have pitfalls and present challenges to providers. Emily Sokol, Director of Research at Extelligent Healthcare Media, is joining us today to discuss a recent insights report that covered advanced payment models and the industry-wide evolution from volume-based fee-for-service reimbursement into advanced payment models. Emily, thank you for joining us on Healthcare Strategies today. Thanks for having me, Kelsey. Um, So before we get into the kind of content of what you all found, it'd be great to have an overview of who you were talking to and who was serving as your resource for this. So could you go into that? Sure. Intelligent Healthcare Media has a database of uh, thousands upon thousands of healthcare stakeholders who read our sites and our Insights Work surveys those individuals. So we emailed about 12,000 targeted members of our database who had identified themselves as holding senior level positions or above at a provider organization. And that can mean anything by our definition from a primary care group to a specialty clinic, behavioral health, hospital health system, et cetera. In total, we had 207 respondents from our list who had self-identified and qualified uh, for the analysis. And one of the things that we do when we break down the results, and you'll hear a little bit later when we go into that, is we compare physician practices with hospitals and health systems to really understand how things like patient reach, resources, and market share can impact their responses. So what we did in our analysis was we combined primary care groups, specialty care groups, behavioral health organizations, and federally qualified and community health clinics together. So as I talk about physician practices, it's those individuals that I'm referring to when we compare them to hospitals or health systems. Great. Thanks. So you discussed in this report that there are three groups of providers involved. One group has basically zero understanding of advanced payment models. Another one has fully embraced the advanced payment model. And then the last group is using a mix of advanced payment models and the fee-for-service model, which is based on quantity. So can you talk a little bit about where most of the providers that we spoke to landed on this spectrum and how these different models can impact a practice, both financially or through quality of care? Yeah. So... I see alternative payment models really falling under the umbrella of value-based care. Uh, Most of these alternative payment models are exactly that. They're an alternative to fee-for-service, and typically they're approaching value. So I use them interchangeably, even though I recognize that there are a few nuances there. But what we saw was really, like you had said, a mixed bag in these three groups of providers. We had about 87% of respondents saying that they're still using fee-for-service reimbursement. And that's set to drop slightly by only about 5% in the next three years. So there's still really a huge reliance that we're seeing on fee-for-service. 
We see really the biggest divide, like I had hinted to, between hospitals and health systems and those physician practices. And I think that's largely driven by the resources that hospitals have at their disposal and their market share or patient reach. Obviously, this is generalizing, but hospitals typically have the bargaining power to go into negotiations for value-based care contracts with payers compared to a smaller physician practice. And we saw this a lot in, in our results. So I like to think about the healthcare payment as a spectrum where fee-for-service is at one end and then a fully capitated payment model is on the other end. And as you move from fee-for-service to capitation, the physician organization is slowly taking on more and more risk. But what we're seeing is that those smaller provider organizations are really stuck more towards the fee-for-service end of the spectrum and don't anticipate much change in the next three years as opposed to those hospitals and health systems. So hospitals predict a really pretty drastic decline in fee-for-service over the next three years, dropping from 87% currently relying on the model to only 76 which is still a really big proportion, but it, a 9% decline is way more than we're seeing on the physician practices who only expect about a 2% decline from 90% currently relying on fee-for-service to only 88% predicting that they will in the next three years. And then when we look at the other end of the spectrum towards the capitation, we see that in the next three years, about 30% of hospitals anticipate that they'll be participating in some sort of shared loss model, but only about 14% of physician practices are saying the same. So generally, we're seeing this pattern and have continued to see this pattern in a lot of our value-based care work where these smaller provider organizations are stuck way more in that fee-for-service end of the spectrum and the hospitals and health systems have the, the resources, capabilities, staff that really are able to propel them towards that other end of the spectrum into more shared savings, shared losses, or fully capitated payment models. Yeah, it's really interesting that basically there's a lot of variation across the healthcare systems. And one interesting quote from the report that stuck out to me was that one of the respondents said, fee-for-service payments are not going away anytime soon. In fact, many believe it is a permanent fixture of healthcare. Can you dive into what is behind that sort of mentality that fee-for-service in some fashion or element will remain permanent? Yeah, so I should say that I don't think that fee-for-service is terrible. I think there are some use cases where fee-for-service is the best payment model for that specific care, but I think that those are few and far between compared to where value-based care can really allow providers in their practice to grow their ability to really address patients more holistically as opposed to what they can address in a fee-for-service world that's sort of like this volume plug-and-chug mentality. Having a value-based care payment model, I think, really gives them the opportunity to focus more on things like social determinants of health, holistic patient care, and really looking at quality outcomes. But I was also really surprised by that quote, and it was interesting in talking to some of the smaller practices when we did our qualitative follow-up. I spoke with one nurse practitioner who's in independent practice who said that she didn't even know where to start and didn't even understand where she should go to learn about breaking into value-based care. She knew that it was a better model than the fee-for-service that she was in, but she, in, you know, for her, has a large patient panel, but in the eyes of a payer her patient panel is is minimal and she doesn't have really the bargaining power to go to the insurer and advocate for a different payment model. Similarly, I spoke to an administrator at a specialist office and they work on doing really specialized care from an insurance perspective, which is a value-based care nightmare because their costs are incredibly high. But for this practice, they're really the end of the line for a lot of patients who've been dragged through multiple providers, multiple specialists to try and figure out what's going on in diagnosing them. 
So a value-based care model could fit really well for their patients holistically. But again, from that insurance perspective, they're seeing really expensive tests and really expensive treatment options that don't fit necessarily in this value-based care mentality. So it can be really difficult for some of these smaller or more specialized organizations to break into that value-based care world, which I thought was something that was really interesting that I took from our, our qualitative follow-up. And when we talk about sort of the importance of value-based care, I think these comments really, really hit home because it shows that it's not a one-size-fits-all model. We group the types of value-based care you know, into the models that they are and hope that you know there's a model for every type of provider, but it's really not a one-size-fits-all model. A capitated payment rate may not work for everyone, but it's sort of this gradual transition towards more value as opposed to the volume-based care that I think is really important that we need to help some of these organizations that don't even know where to start and carry them along in that transition and figure out what sort of nuanced model will work best for them. Otherwise, I think we're going to hit a really large divide between those who have the capabilities to adopt value-based care and those who are sort of trapped in a fee-for-service world. And I think that that's going to bring about a lot of headbutting in the industry if there isn't if there isn't that general alignment and push towards value. If you have some who are trapped in fee-for-service and some who are in these really advanced value-based care models, I would hope there, isn't, there aren't differences in care delivery, but there's going to be differences in the resources that are available for care delivery. And if I had to venture, I guess, also probably differences in provider mentality, burnout, a lot of those things that we're starting to hear about now too. Yeah, that makes sense. And you had mentioned that in some scenarios that fee-for-service might actually be a good model. I just wondered if there was anything you'd like to expound on like where that might work. Yeah. So I think there are some cases like a flu shot fits really well into a fee-for-service model because that's not necessarily an appointment where you are addressing a patient holistically. Whereas something like an annual wellness visit where you really want to have the time the resources and the connections to connect that patient to everything they need and what might be their only visit to a provider in the year, something like that doesn't necessarily fit into a fee-for-service world, in my opinion. Yeah, so that does make a lot of sense. So in situations where fee-for-service is not the best solution for a provider, and yet they do have this mentality of feeling kind of stuck in the fee-for-service model... What would you say to those who believe that this is a permanent solution and who might need a little bit more of a push to look towards alternative payment models as a potential solution? So I unfortunately don't think that I can say that these people who think fee-for-service is going to be around forever are wrong. I, I wish they were, but I don't think we can say that. And I don't think our data says that. I mean, 87% of providers are still using it and 82% say they will in the next three years. So it's not something that's going away anytime soon change in healthcare is is slow and i think we need to just make sure that we're continuing to progress in this direction it's you know we're only seeing a 5% decline over the next 3 years but it's a decline so if we keep making that incremental change towards more value based care we're going to align our healthcare payment with what the healthcare system values which is you know high quality low cost care that improves patient outcomes so this gradual change, I think, will open up better opportunity for payment and practice to align and give providers the opportunity to really focus on you know, quality care, social determinants of health, and innovation as opposed to this really volume-based care where you're just trying to get as many patients in and out 
as quickly as possible. You know, we address a lot of stakeholders on this podcast, and I'm sure there are stakeholders who are listening who are not hospital or providers, and I'm sure they want to help their provider partners move toward a value-based care system. Um, But, you know, they also recognize that the concerns that providers have are very real, and they're very hard to overcome, especially for those small practices. So based on the findings of this report, what recommendations would you give to you know payers or, or vendors or other stakeholders who are trying to help providers transition off of fee-for-service payment models? So we've seen this over and over again in the work. We've done work specifically around the state of value-based care and the transition. We've also done a report on payer perspectives and provider perspectives of value-based care. And I think that the refrain I keep hearing is that payers and providers really need to talk. And I know that sounds really, really simple, but that relationship I think is really key to the success of value-based care. So having the open conversations, being willing to negotiate for potentially smaller practices, or maybe thinking of innovative ways where you can combine smaller practices and and move them towards more value-based care, or what resources do these provider practices need in order to gain the data and information that a payer might then be comfortable with to negotiate for a value-based care contract. You know, we really saw a split in this report on who is initiating these conversations. We had about 37% of providers said that they go to the payer first, and 39% said the payer goes to them first. And I don't necessarily think it matters who makes the first move, but I think understanding the perspective of the other is going to be really critical to having these open discussions that hopefully lead towards you know mutually agreeable negotiations and contracts for for both parties involved and ultimately for the patients who is the goal of this whole thing is to for better patient outcomes and patient care. Great. And um, I always like to ask, did anything surprise you about the results of this report? So what surprised me the most was that staffing is one of the biggest barriers to these risk-based models. And I think that's paralleling the workforce shortage that we're seeing across really the country as a whole, regardless of, of sector. And I'm going to be curious to see how that response might change moving forward. But I think that pointing to the fact that staff is one of the biggest limitations in these risk-based models. It really speaks to how important having capable, reliable employees to tackle the technology that might enable things, the revenue cycle management, the analytics that are all required for these robust payment models is really going to be important internally. And you can't do any of these advanced models or advanced data analytics or anything that goes into these value-based care, even negotiations without having that trusted staff. And I think that also to speak a little bit more generally points to sort of the need for value-based care training and education at large in the industry. It was really surprising to me talking to some of these smaller providers who say, I know value-based care is a thing and I know that it's right. It aligns with my values and my practice, but I don't even know where to begin. So I think that broader education about what value-based care is, what's required in a model, how can individuals begin, what resources do you need to dive into these negotiation with payers is all going to be really, really critical moving forward. And you can't do any of that without capable and educated staff. So that I think is one of the most surprising things is that staffing moving forward is going to be really key to pushing the value-based care agenda. So if I had to give an action item to the stakeholders who are reading this report, listening to this podcast, following our, our work at Excelgent Healthcare Media, it's really critical to make smart investments in both the tech resources and the staff who are going to be working with those tech resources that are going to enable the success of these value-based care models. 
Makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, thank you so much for giving us that sort of breakdown of what we're learning in this report. And just looking forward to the future, I know you guys have a lot going on in our research space right now. So could you kind of give a little sneak peek about what's on the horizon? Yes, we do have a lot of work coming down the pipeline, which I'm excited about. One of the biggest initiatives that we've kicked off this year was our data insights work. So we have realized in addition to the data that we're collecting through our insights reports, that there's a ton of publicly available data out there from you know Medicare, CDC, et cetera. We're trying to leverage those data sources to analyze them in a new way and then make actionable statements for our readers. So we have some more of those coming down the pipeline. The most recent one that we had conducted was looking at the Delta variant and those areas of the country that are most at risk for hyperlocal events. And we talk about some of the resources that these areas can really focus on in order to avoid an outbreak. So we have a few more of those that are coming up that I'm really excited about. And then one of our big pieces of work that we've been doing since our research department began was tracking value-based care over time. So we'll be conducting our third annual value-based care assessment this year as well, where we monitor the state of value-based care. We take stock of which payment models organizations are participating in and are trying to really monitor that progression across the spectrum over time. So that should be coming down the pipeline as well. So the data insights work, the full reports there can be found on our healthcare executive intelligence site and then our research insights reports. So those big reports like the one that we had just broken down today can be found on our corporate site at intelligentmedia.com slash insights. Great. We will be excited to hear more about that in the future on the podcast as we always like to do a bit of a review for our listeners. So thank you so much, Emily, for coming on today and for uh, letting us know what's going on in your area of healthcare industry. Always fun to join, Kelsey. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to me at kwadil at extelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any health industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production.